Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, growing concerns about the spread of COVID-19 variants in Canada and whether some provinces are moving too quickly to lift restrictions. And the federal government is facing growing calls to push back against China's growing influence in Canada and its threat to Western democracies. MPs will be here to debate that. But we will begin tonight with concerns about where the pandemic could be headed next. Canada may be entering a precarious phase of the battle against COVID-19, according to many health experts. And it's because of the potentially disastrous intersection of COVID-19 variants and the easing of restrictions in some provinces. The variants are spreading and proving to be much more contagious. There have now been more than 600 cases of variants reported in 10 provinces. And that has many experts urging provinces and municipalities to delay their plans for reopening businesses and non-essential services. Right now, the case counts. The case count numbers don't look so bad. They don't sound bad. But today's variant count is the tip of an iceberg. By the time the confirmed case counts are big enough to shock us, it will be too late to do anything. We will be in a third wave, as bad as anything we've been through thus far. We are seeing uh, a significant growth in the variants that are being detected in our community. And I know it's not news that people want to hear, but I think just holding on for a couple more weeks will allow us to really figure out what the picture is, to try to get things under control, to try to make sure that the school reopening goes off without a hitch. All right, let's follow up on the latest now. Rewat Dionandan is an epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Uh, thanks for joining me again today. Great to see you. Thank you. Look, we, we heard an ominous warning from the Medical Officer of Health in Toronto saying if the number of COVID-19 variant infections keeps growing, we will be in a third wave worse than anything we've seen so far. Uh, let me start there. Do you share that ominous warning? I do. Now, a third wave seems like it's almost inevitable for a number of reasons. One, we seem to be mimicking the 1918 Spanish flu trajectory, and they had a third wave around this time. Two is that this is the way things work. It's based on human behavior. As things get better, we re-enter society, and the case numbers go up again. And three, the new variants. And it seems likely that the mechanism for our third wave will be one of these hypertransmissible variants. So the threat is real and likely. All right, the city of Toronto, um, and we heard uh, uh, the concern expressed by uh, the chief medical officer today. They're now pushing to delay the reopening in that city until March 9th instead of next week. What would your advice be? I think that's a good idea. Look, we're, the numbers are coming down, which is good, but we're coming down to the levels we saw back in October when we were first considering closing in the first place. So it's a strange place to be considering opening up. Our healthcare system is still taxed, and so if we plateau here, that doesn't do a lot in terms of saving the healthcare workers uh, some energy and time and stress. And if the plan here was to uh, 
enact restrictions to buy us time to get better public health assets, we haven't used that time well. So we still need to get our ducks in a row in terms of measuring and surveilling for these new variants and in terms of getting guidance for what to do if there's a new outbreak of the new variants. We need better testing. We need better contact tracing. We need better tools. And we need time to allow vaccination. We're in a race here. Can we vaccinate enough people to get ahead of the likelihood of the new variants being dominant? And if we give the virus a head start in that race, that's not a good idea. Okay, tell me more about that. Uh, how will we know if we've managed to check it, if, you know, this, this, uh, you know, this intersection between trying to get enough vaccines into arms uh, to push back the variant? Uh, how do we know how that unfolds? Surveillance. We need to have the tools on the ground to know when and where the new variants are manifesting. So we can do wastewater surveillance. We can do regular proactive active surveillance in the community using our rapid testing capacity. We need to do this in places like schools and workplaces. If we rely upon people to present themselves in hospitals to be tested, that's not good enough. That's passive surveillance. So we need to really retask our active surveillance system. And we need to get more vaccine doses. That seems to be at the bottom of all of this. The one solution everybody can get behind is vaccinate quickly and at scale. So we need to procure more vaccines. When uh, we hear uh, it's the province of Ontario, we may see this argument build across the country as well about pushing back reopenings or uh, reinstituting some uh, lockdown measures to try and uh, stop the spread of the variants. And that's going to result in uh, no doubt pushback from businesses who are already being battered by the pandemic closings and arguing. Uh, they say that, look, they can keep their customers safe uh, with the measures they're taking. How strong is that argument in the face of the way these variants seem to spread and the stronger effect they have? I'm sympathetic to these arguments. However, people need to understand that the new variants are so transmissible that our mitigation tools might not be enough. So the, the margin of error for failure is now very, very thin indeed. We can't risk sloppy mask wearing. We need better quality masks. We need a better investment in better ventilation in our institutions. I don't know if these businesses have air purifiers or HVAC systems of high quality filtration. These are the things that need to happen. The new variants are so hypertransmissible and they might actually be more lethal that the ability of our current mitigation strategies to contain them is deeply in question. We now uh, are told we have some 600 cases of variants present in uh, 10 provinces. That number creeps up every day. It doesn't seem like a lot, though, to a lot of people. But um, do you believe that's probably underreported? And if so, why is that so worrisome? It probably is underreported, but not by uh, much. Now, the problem is that we're looking at exponential growth. And exponential growth is not something easily digested by the human brain. It's why most of us don't get rich. We don't understand finances that well. The thing about exponential growth is that there are two phases, the long horizontal phase and the explosive short vertical phase. As a result, things look good until they don't. Thing, the cases look low until suddenly they're out of control. Any public health response then has to feel like an overreaction. We need to act while the cases are few to prevent them from getting high. So that's a, it's a difficult mindset to wrap your brain around. That's the nature of public health. It's, we have to be proactive and precautionary. The fact that the variants exist at all and are growing is deeply concerning because they will explode out of control unless they are contained. If that isn't enough to get uh, people concerned and uh, you know, taking the necessary measures to protect themselves and the people around them, we are also hearing today about the discovery of the first recombinant event uh, where two variants have come together in a hybrid variant, in this case a variant from the UK and a variant from California. Uh, how worrisome is that as a new development? 
Well, it sounds scary. It's something out of a horror movie, right? But this is not unheard of in the world of small-scale pathogens. Uh, microscopic organisms share DNA all the time, and this is not an un unheard of event. It may actually be beneficial in some ways. It may create a less lethal, less transmissible creature, or maybe worse. We don't know yet. So I would, I would not be panicking about this just yet. Keep in mind that the arisal of new variants is inevitable. The more transmission we have, the more cases we have in the community, the higher likelihood of things like this happening. The way forward is to diminish transmission, lower the number of cases, and vaccinate at scale so that mutations cannot occur and recombinant events cannot occur. Raywa Dionand, and always good to get your perspective. Thanks for offering it to us again tonight. Take care. My pleasure. Well, let's go to Dan Kelly now. He's the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He joins me from Toronto. Uh, Mr. Kelly, uh, good to see you again. Always good to talk to you. So what are you thinking uh, this evening as you hear health officials and municipal leaders and even the, uh, the premier now hedging his bets somewhat uh, around Toronto uh, and those calls building in some other provinces as well for extensions to lock down and stay at home orders? What are you thinking? Gosh, it, it, it's just getting worse and worse by the minute here. I mean, we were finally getting a tiny bit of good news as Ontario started to reopen in, in other parts of the province, so certainly the city of Ottawa. Uh, but retailers in Toronto, Peel and York have been shut down for, I think, 180 days uh, so far during the pandemic. There's nothing left to give here. These guys are closing, turning in their keys every five minutes They've got to be given a safe pathway to reopen. And if he pushes that back, God help us, I don't know how many businesses are going to go bankrupt almost immediately. What are you hearing from your members as they face this new uncertainty today? Well, I've already started to receive emails just over the last hour from business owners saying that they just recalled all of their workers to start back on Monday. They put ads in the papers or uh, in, in social media to try to encourage some customers to come in. I mean, these are the worst retail months to begin with. They've had no business for months and months, missed their Christmas holiday season, finally see a little pathway to, to make a few bucks to uh, try to at least eke out a bit of a living, uh, and now fears that that'll be snatched away. Other provinces with higher COVID numbers than Ontario, for goodness sakes, have been open on the retail side for months and months. Toronto, Peel, York, I mean, this is not a reopening. Mm. Restaurants have to remain closed already. Um, uh, hair salons, nail salons were to remain closed. Gyms were to remain closed. I mean, for goodness sakes, they're talking about eliminating the little sliver that they've given to retail members uh, that was expected for next week. That's just super, super disappointing and unfair. If it goes ahead, God help us all. All right. What do you want from Premier Ford? Does, does, does he ignore the recommendations that he's getting today from health experts? No, look, I got, I, he's got to listen to it. I understand that. But for goodness sakes, other provinces have public health officials too and have found safe pathways for businesses to remain open through the entire pandemic, uh, certainly through the second wave. I'll point out that the British Columbia government, an NDP government, and one of the most widely celebrated medical offices of health, Bonnie Henry, they have kept the retail sector in British Columbia open for the entire pandemic, including the first wave. Why Ontario feels like it needs to maintain these bizarre policies that no other province is touching uh, is beyond me. 
All right. So let's dig in. So what are you suggesting as an alternative to an extended lockdown uh, in these regions in Ontario? Uh, are you suggesting look at those models in other provinces and let's do that? You got it. Uh, look, we very few businesses are calling for the removal of all of the restrictions. We get it. There's a, a dangerous pandemic that's still out there, health concerns. We've got to play our part. Uh, but for one thing, I mean, they were largely admitting that the reasons for the lockdowns were really to send a message to the public, not really because the business activity itself was inherently risky. Secondly, other provinces have found pathways to continue to allow most businesses to remain open, including indoor restaurant dining uh, through the second wave and much of the much, and even for in some for the first. We can borrow examples. Schools have been open in other provinces for is for months. And, and stores and other businesses have been allowed to reopen, including gyms. COVID numbers have continued to decline in other jurisdictions. And in Ontario, we feel like we can't borrow from any of the lessons that we're seeing in other provinces in real time. With these new aggressive variants, it's been pointed out by one of the experts we just uh, spoke to. You know, and the issues, uh, I guess, is how these are different now. And I guess the concern is how can businesses be sure that they can protect their customers? Uh, the suggestion being that in some of the other jurisdictions you've you've talked about where they've been able to keep businesses open, uh, there's a suggestion that they may face restrictions there too if, if these variants get away from us. So uh, what about this challenge of keeping customers safe for these businesses? Look, we are, everybody needs to take this seriously, and businesses do too. They've invested a small fortune in protective measures and PPE, uh, barriers at the check stands to try to make sure that they protect their employees, protect their customers. But for goodness sakes, we've got to at least allow businesses a small pathway to, to, to eke out a living until such time as vaccines kick in. Numbers are down. I understand that there are concerns about what variants may, may bring in every jurisdiction. But we've got to at least allow business owners a, a, a bit of a pathway to survive. If we want Canadians to have jobs to come back to, we just can't lock everybody in a cocoon until September and then hope vaccines are kicking in. We've got to make sure that there's a safe pathway and then ebb and flow as we go. And, and, and so Ontario did lay out a plan. It was a small one, but they need to stick with it. I mean, this, is, this would be disastrous for Ontario to change gears at this stage. All right, uh, Dan Kelly from the CFIB. Uh, thanks so much for uh, speaking with me tonight. Mr. Kelly, we'll talk again soon. Anytime. And the political battle over the pandemic response in the province of Ontario boiled over in the Ontario legislature today and ended with calls for the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, to apologize after comparing the voice of the leader of the official opposition, Andrea Horvath, to nails on a blackboard. When will the Premier actually start listening to the hospitals, to the doctors, to his own experts Question. and prevent this province from going into yet another third wave and lockdown? Premier, Through you, Mr. Speaker, I've obviously listened to the Chief Medical Officer from day one. I've uh, never uh, wavered from that. I've listened to all the CEOs, and maybe if you talk to some of the CEOs of the hospitals, uh, leader of the opposition, you might get some input. Rather than sitting there and constantly criticizing from day one, uh, putting confusion with the, the public about uh, paid uh, sick days, rather than sending uh, inaccurate information out to the public and hurting the public, why, why don't you come and, and, and join us to support the people of Ontario for once, rather than just sit there and criticize and criticize? You know, it's, it's like. 
It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. Well, the Premier's comments were described as sexist and misogynistic by his political opponents, and they triggered uh, a significant backlash on social media and calls for the apology. For her part, Andrea Horvath said the Premier owes the apology to the people of Ontario. Now we'll turn our attention to Canada's relations with China and calls for the Prime Minister to take a new, tougher approach to China. The Prime Minister is out of step with the Biden administration on China. The Prime Minister is out of step with our Five Eyes allies on China. The Prime Minister is even out of step with his own caucus on China. And the experienced Liberal Finance Chair says that he needs to wake up and smell the roses. Will the Prime Minister wake up and remove Canada from the Asian Infrastructure Bank? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, over the past number of years, we've always been very clear uh, with China uh, where we disagreed on human rights, where we have real concerns about the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, about the uh, situation in Hong Kong. We've continued uh, to express our concern and demonstrate our solidarity with uh, the two Michaels and expect that they be returned home from arbitrary detention, while at the same time we continue to work with partners around the world on uh, holding China to account and uh, improving opportunities for our workers and businesses across the country and around the world. These are things we will continue to work on, including tomorrow in our virtual G7 meeting. So, mounting pressure on the Prime Minister and his government to take a tougher stand against China on a growing list of issues from the imprisonment of the two Canadian Michaels, the treatment of the Muslim Uyghur minority, the hosting of next year's Olympic Games, and China's influence in Canada. But uh, of course, all of that, a delicate challenge while the two Michaels are still being held in China. Let's bring in three members of Parliament to debate the Canadian government's approach. Rob Oliphant is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Michael Chong is the Foreign Affairs Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Heather McPherson is the Deputy Foreign Affairs Critic for the NDP. It's good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Mr. Oliphant, let me start with you. The House of Commons Finance Committee is urging the federal government to withdraw from the China-sponsored Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank because uh, they describe it as just a front to spread China's influence and model of governance in the region. The Liberal chair of that committee says it's time for the federal cabinet to wake up and smell the roses when it comes to China. Is he right? Is it time for a different approach to that relationship? Well, I have a great respect for the, the chair of that committee, uh, Wayne Eastern. I have a great respect for the work that the uh, Finance Committee has done as they've been doing uh, consultations across the, while well, they've been doing them virtually across the country uh, to get ready for the budget. And, and the report is in, I've not read the report, but I understand that they have made a recommendation uh, to the government regarding the, uh, the Asian investment um, infrastructure investment bank. And I think the government needs to take that into consideration. They're continuing their own um, uh, consultations with Canadians about the way we should invest. I think it's it's uh, important to note that you know opposition parties have have called for some time for that uh, investment bank to be uh, defunded. However, we have international. Right, but, but I'm, I'm really just I'm really just flagging that. I'm just we, but we I'm just I'm, like, I'm just I'm just kind of flagging that as the latest sort of evidence that there's a growing. Uh, call from different quarters here for the federal government to get tougher with China. So is it time to rethink the approach to China? Well, I, th I, I think the, the reality is we have been in constant rethinking of the relationship with China. Obviously, in the last two years, since Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were arbitrarily detained, uh, we have been extremely tough with China. We have, we have hard conversations with China. 
Uh, we've been looking for ways to fulfill our responsibility with respect to extradition treaty with the United States, our responsibility to ensure that we have uh, markets for produce that is produced in Western Canada and okay. across the country, but also stand up multilaterally with countries around the world to say that we will not tolerate the infringements upon human rights. We'll stand tough about Hong Kong, tough about Tibet, tough about the respect for, for Taiwan, and tough about uh, uh, the Uyghur, the persecution of Uyghur. Okay, in, let, uh, let me move to your colleagues here. Mr. Mr. Chong, what's, Mr. Chong, what's missing from Canada's current approach to China? Well, to be frank, uh, the government's approach to China is a complete mess. And the government itself has implicitly acknowledged that. In fact, all of last year, they were talking about coming forward with a new framework on China. Well, what happened was last September, it got nixed at the federal cabinet level. Um, and so we are once again left with policy incoherence and confusion on this file. And whether it's on their approach to the Uyghur genocide, uh, the treatment of some 300,000 Canadian citizens in Hong Kong, uh, the comments that Ambassador Barton has made, uh, the whole thing is a complete mess. The government needs to come forward with a new framework on China that's comprehensive, that works in concert with our allies, and that takes a much stronger stand on China, acknowledging that China has changed and is now threatening Canadian citizens, Canadian companies, our interests, our values. Okay, uh, Heather McPherson, what's, what's your party's view on this about uh, the, the, the current approach the federal government has been taking to the relationship with China? You know, I think it's 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 unfortunately like many of of what we've seen out of this government. There's there's a lot of words, there's a lot of you know concern expressed, but there isn't that action that we need to see. Like we we just haven't seen things happening. You know, how long have we been hearing from them that they are they are concerned about the situation in Hong Kong? How long have we been hearing that they are concerned about the situation um, with the Uyghurs? That these are things that they should be acting on. We need to we need to be stronger. We need to be working with our allies. We've been calling on that for months now. There needs to be more action. I think it's it's that that stall that we just don't see any okay. action happening here. That's so problematic, Mr. Oliphant. Let's let's drill down on one one issue here. Uh, the prime minister is reluctant to call China's treatment of the Uyghur minority a genocide at this point. What's he waiting for? Uh, I, I won't speak for the Prime Minister. What I do know, uh, first of all, I want to say we do work multilaterally. We've issued strong statements uh, with the UK, with the United States, with New Zealand, with Australia, with respect to Hong Kong. Uh, we, we continually uh, working multilaterally and it's we are not naive. Okay, what, 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 what I'm asking is what, what's, what's, we'll what's, what's the reluctance? With respect to the Uyghurs, we have a report that has come from the subcommittee that is still a confidential report. Uh, that report is being reviewed at the, uh, the the Committee on Foreign Affairs. It will go forward. Um, my, my assumption is that that committee will see uh, it's the, the response will be given in the House of Commons and that Canadians will have a chance to, to review that. All right. It is not a court of law. It is not a multilateral statement. We don't want to, we take genocide extremely seriously. We take genocide so seriously that we don't want to enter into the use of that language without a thorough review. That would demean what happened in Rwanda. That would demean what happened in the Holocaust, in okay. Armenia, in places where we have declared genocide. Let me get a response from your colleagues. Mr. Chong, what, what about that explanation that there's a process to follow before you can declare a genocide? I don't buy it. Uh, two consecutive U.S. administrations 
have concluded a genocide is taking place. In fact, the new Biden Secretary of State has come to that conclusion, as has the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. Uh, there are numerous reports now that have come forward in the last year that have concluded a genocide is taking place. We're talking about systematic population control, sexual violence. We're talking about mass detention centers where up to over a million Uyghurs, Muslims, are being incarcerated. Uh, there's clear evidence now that a genocide is taking place. And it's not only uh, coming from those quarters. It's coming from investigative journalists, from the Wall Street Journal. All right. Well, well then why, why, do you, why, do you, why do you think there's a reluctance for the prime minister to come out and say it then? Well, I think this government has been dangerously naive when it comes to China. I think they have been incoherent and contradictory. Um, I don't know what, where this comes from. Look, David Vigneault, the head of CSIS, has been sounding the alarm bell for several years now about China's threats hmm. to Canada, most recently a, a couple of weeks ago. Yet the government continues to ignore expert advice and ignore the dangers and the threats that are going on. All right, all right. Uh, Heather McPherson, what, what about the, the Prime Minister's suggestion that, look, uh, there's a process before you uh, uh, accuse a company, uh, uh, sorry, accuse a country of genocide? Uh, what about that explanation? Well, absolutely, except that, you know, like Michael has said, this has been called out by so many different places. I was on that human rights committee. I listened to that testimony. We released a statement in October. This is a human rights of um, a human rights issue that is affecting millions of people, and there is urgency here. So, you know, if the Liberal government wants to do more research and find out more information, why aren't they doing that? They have the ability to do that. They don't have to wait for a report to come to the Foreign Affairs Committee. They could make, they could do the research that they need to do. This is urgent. This is this is a genocide happening in real time. People's lives are on the line. And, and to say, well, there's a process seems very cold-hearted. All right, let's finish on this last night. It's, it's about the Olympics, Mr. Oliphant. Uh, again, facing lots of calls from different quarters uh, for Canada to boycott the Olympics or to push for a relocation of the Olympic Games in China slated for next year. Is your government considering that? Everything is, is always on the table. There are conversations going on. We don't decide where the Olympics are held. We don't decide uh, that participation that is done by the Canadian Olympic, the Canadian Paralympic uh, Committee's that's their responsibility. It is the IOC's responsibility to do that. Our national, international partners are going to have many conversations about this. What we will do is ensure that our athletes are safe and protected. We'll ensure that they have the, the ability to compete as they want to compete. We'll also have the, uh, the assurance that we will do this multilaterally. We're not naive about China in any sense. We take the security threats seriously. But we're also not going to jump to conclusions. We're not going to try to score political points. We're not trying to, to enter a, a, an era of, of fear and scare tactics. What we're doing is thoughtful, good, evidence-based right. research. On Mr. Chong, Mr. Chong, let me move to you. There's, 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 ev there's evidence that uh, Olympic boycotts don't always have the desired effect. I mean, if you look at 1980 and, and uh, Moscow, uh, 66 countries didn't go, 80 countries did go, and not much changed. Um, so I, I guess, you, 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 where's your party on this and what's the value of pulling Canada out of the Olympics uh, if that were to happen? Well, Peter, uh, we're calling for the government to make a formal request of the International Olympic Committee to seek the relocation of the Games. I, we don't think it's appropriate for Canada to fly the flag in the shadow of a genocide. And we're not pretending that 
relocating the games or potentially even boycotting the games is going to lead to an immediate change in behavior on part of China. But neither did Canada's principled stand against apartheid in the 1980s. Canada took a principled stand against apartheid in South Africa, and it didn't lead to the immediate end of apartheid. It took several years before apartheid was dismantled. But what our stand in the 1980s did was send a clarion call to the world for action against an injustice. And that's what we're calling on the government to do here in respect of the genocide that's taking place in China, to take a principled position on this and call democracies around the world to take action to say, never again, means okay. something. Uh, Adam, first, let me give the final word to you on this. Uh, what should Canada do about the uh, Olympics in China next year? You know, we also did not, we're not calling for a boycott at this time, but I think that it's it's true. There is a genocide happening. We have an obligation to 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 act on that. We have an obligation to ask the IOC to move the Olympic Games so that our athletes, I mean, I love the Olympic Games. I'm an, I was an athlete. My family are, were athletes. Um, to move the Games so that the athletes that have trained their whole life uh, to compete in this event, it, it won't be tainted by, by this the, the 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 face of a genocide in the country that is hosting these games. Right. You know, we we need to change that. All right. Thank you all for your time. A uh, story will continue to follow, but appreciate you uh, joining the conversation today. Thank you all. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time.